BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I'm excited to introduce you to Mona Delahook. Our conversation is going to be kind of an introduction to the young child's nervous system so that instead of focusing on behaviors, eliminating behaviors, promoting behaviors, looking at kids with a new approach, considering the bigger picture, considering the relationship and considering their nervous system. And once you understand their nervous system, you can understand how to communicate with them and you can help them learn behaviors that will help them. They learn self-regulation and they learn resilience. I also want to encourage everyone, if you have not already, please go sign up at draliza.bulletin.com. There'll be a link in the show notes, or you can just go into my Instagram. The link is in the bio. On there is a free subscription to a weekly newsletter. I'll be writing articles about the episodes, giving summaries, and then how to put the concepts into everyday parenting practices. And also talking about articles that are out there in the world that have an impact on our parenting. And then for a paid subscription for $4.99 a month, I'm going to be having live Q&A sessions, live conversations with subscribers and cuts from the episode that aren't on the podcast, as well as articles answering listener Q&As from my Instagram DM that I haven't gotten a chance to answer on Instagram because they're just a little bit too long for those one minute reels. But I know that you want to hear the answer or because they can't be on my bonus episode. So it's just another way to reach this community and have space for meeting everybody's needs. Hope to see you there. And if you enjoy this episode, don't hesitate to write a little review, give a five-star rating, and as always, keep reaching out to me. My model really is that behaviors are the t- just the tip of the iceberg, and they provide really useful information for parents, for teachers, for providers, but they are the signal of the much bigger piece of ice underneath the waterline that you can't see. Those millions of individual differences that are unique to each child. 
And we shouldn't go messing around with behaviors until we really understand the functionality of those behaviors. The population that I started with, many of the stories are in the book, Beyond Behaviors, was when autistic children were being targeted for for moving around. So there's, there's this little guy that I was observing in his classroom and he was moving his body. The teacher was talking. It was like circle time. And the aide told him to, to be quiet. He couldn't. And so he started to nudge her. And then she decided that according to his behavior plan, that she should move away so he couldn't touch her. So she moved behind him and then he couldn't see her so he started to look around, moving in his chair so he could see her, which mm-hmm. I then understood as he was trying to connect with her to feel safer. But he fell over on his chair mm-hmm. and all of a sudden he was in trouble. So the teacher and a super well-intentioned teacher, by the way, I do not give blame or shame to any professional because I believe we're all there trying to do our best. But in this plan, I was sitting in the back of the room. I knew he was in autonomic distress. I knew that he was in the fight or flight response and his body needed to move, but he needed compassion. He didn't need to be isolated, but they took him to the calm down room. And that's a really nice name for a really horrible spot. Yeah. A padded room where the aide went in with him, but she was instructed not to talk to him. And he began banging his head against the wall. And that moment, Aliza, that's when I knew. I looked around, I'm like, oh my God, is anybody else here upset at what's happening to the child? And Mm -hmm. everyone was going about their day because that's the standard. They just look at compliance as the measure. When I knew, because I saw this kid in individual therapy, I'd seen him since he was two and he was now, um, I think he was 10 he needed support. He didn't need to be isolated. You said two things that I want to expand a little bit for everyone. And then I want to go back to this, of course, that is a heartbreaking, but really beautiful illustration of what you're talking about. You said autonomic distress, and I want to define that for folks who don't know what autonomic distress is or what autonomic systems are. And then I also just want to say that you mentioned compliance. And of course, the teachers and the system aren't to blame. I'm a developmental psychologist. So I it's interesting because my lens was never clinical. So whenever clinicians come to this realization, I feel like, and this is why these fields are siloed inappropriately. We focus so much on infant and toddler in terms of informing development and individual differences and not on compliance because no one in like, no one's thinking about compliance in in developmental psych because you're just looking at a different thing. You might look at that as an outcome among many and school disruption and things like that. But it's so interesting because I think compliance is such the goal for so many parents because they're exhausted, because yeah. it feels like their child will have an easier time in life if they learn compliance. And there are so many, it's such an interesting conversation in and of itself. Yeah. And I would never judge if a parent said, I want compliance, like, thank you for this yeah. other stuff. But what I'm interested in is the compliance component. Then fine, there's lots of ways that we know how to help with compliance, but it's counter 
intuitive because so much of it would be solved through connection. And I think that that whole story illustrates that very idea. But I want to go back to what you said about autonomic distress and then move to compliance and all of this other wonderful stuff. In your training as a developmental psychologist and in mine as an infant mental health specialist, we saw and learned that the way infants and toddlers move their bodies and young children move their bodies are protective and adaptive. And what does that mean? We don't exist as just a brain or just a body. Obviously, we have a central nervous system, which includes the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the head, the brain and the spinal cord and the rest of the body. It connects the rest of the body. And so what we think about once our children can talk and walk is that we want to appeal to their brain. And that's natural because we want to talk to them and they can talk to us and reason with us. Mm -hmm. But the brain gets its operating instructions from the body. 80% of the signals that come from the nerve, the vagal nerve up to the brain are sensory. And those go up to the brain and only 20% go from the brain down to the body. What does that mean? It means that we are beings that are driven by our, what I call our platform. Our platform is our physiology. It is the brain-body connection because we're never just a brain and we're never just a body. We're always both. And once we understand that this, so there's a nervous system called the autonomic nervous system. It is the main system of communication between the body and the brain, and it's bidirectional and the brain and the body. So it's always going, information is going up and down from the body to the brain, from the brain to the body, telling the body how to move and informing the body how you feel inside, both physical sensations and affects or feelings. It's a masterful, marvelous system that we don't. It's involuntary, right? Like it's automatic, right? Automatic. Imagine exactly. Automatic, and it takes care of our bodily functions. It maintains stability or or allostasis, meaning homeostasis in our body, and that's how we stay healthy and safe and alive. Our bodies are always in this huge symphony of reacting to what we need from both reacting to what is happening out in the world, but also what's happening to inside of our internal organs and our children and ourselves. We're all impacted by our platform, by what's going on inside of our physiology. What really matters is that there's a way of thinking about our nervous system and three main pathways that protect us in our nervous system. And one is when we are feeling calm and safe, it's called the social engagement system. And it is when we're feeling calm and safe, we are alert, we're open to learning, kids want to play, we are able to stretch, we're able to do what's asked of us. And you can see, you can see it in in humans, our bodies are relaxed. We have you know, neutral looks on our face or smiles, giggles. There's prosody in the voice. There's a whole cascade of stuff that you see on the body when you feel calm 
and alert. And when you're in this, what we'll, I'll call it the green pathway, just in the green, you don't have to remember the scientific words for it. So this is when kids, again, are open to learning and you're, you're good to go. You're, this is where we can teach. We can ask kids to stretch. We can reason with them and all, and it's always is kind of good in the world, but we don't permanently stay there. It's impossible because the world throws stuff at us constantly. So there are two other protective and adaptive pathways that happen when you face a threat, when you face something that makes your body experience stress. And that pathway that happens when your body experiences stress is called the red pathway, let's say going to the red. And that is also known as the fight or flight system, but it's an actual neural pathway that's mostly associated with movement. So your child might be trying to run away or kicking or screaming or crying. They have, you know, a rapid heart rate, their face is flushed, their nose is sweaty, their hands are sweaty. You can see the distress in the body. And that is an actual physiological, what we call physiological state. I just call it the platform that is not very compatible with the child listening or hearing well. From a physiological standpoint, the middle ear muscles attenuate to lower frequency sounds and not human voices. So if you've ever tried to talk to a child that's extremely upset or agitated, that's why. And, and basically it's, you know, it's protective because it's the body trying to feel better. And oftentimes, like for, think about a toddler who, who might go into this, they're learning how to field disappointment and changes in plans and things not going the way they want. That is a learning process that can often send toddlers into this distress. And it's legit in their little bodies. It's legit. So we don't want to judge them based on what we think they should be feeling. It's a big deal. Right. 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 Yeah. We have to understand where something is landing in the child's nervous system. And when we understand where it's landing in their nervous system and we're common enough ourselves, of course, then we can really help them get back to the green. So the third pathway is what I call the blue pathway. It's a technical name is the dorsal vagal pathway, which is pretty high stress. So that would mean kind of a child is starting to give up hope physiologically. They may appear checked out, not listening not wanting to engage, not wanting to play, not scanning the room for new objects or exploration. And this is where a child's body is really starting to slow down. It's not as common as the red pathway, of course. And, but we really do want to look for it because oftentimes children who are shut down and I'm talking, I'm not talking about for an hour or even a few days at a time, I'm talking about weeks or months. So if you see a child who may be very blue and staying that way for a long period of time, sometimes they are viewed as overly compliant and sometimes we miss them at, in schools and, and such. So we want to just make sure if a child isn't playing, exploring, they don't have, uh, have the ability to have a joyful expression on their face once in a while, then you really want to look at their nervous system and, and the more shut down a child is the more vulnerable their nervous system is at that moment. And now I want to take a break so that I can tell you about my sponsors. Green Chef is a CCOF certified meal kit company that makes eating well, easy, 
with plans to fit into every lifestyle. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, gluten-free, or just looking to eat a more balanced meal, Green Chef offers a range of recipes to suit your preferences. And here's the thing. It's so easy because Green Chef saves you time by taking care of meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep work for you week after week so you don't have to. Green Chef's pre-portioned ingredients means that you'll actually reduce your food waste by at least 25% compared to grocery shopping. They have fresh produce delivered, organic ingredients that you can trust. It is the number one meal kit and it has so many cool options. Now, my favorite part about this is that I'm not a great cook. And much of the reason why I never got into cooking was figuring out what to get, how to organize the week, all the spices, all the sauces, all of the vegetables. I I just, eh, I give up a lot. Green Chef has options for every lifestyle. The kids actually think I cooked something reasonable. I just made mole chicken and it was delicious if I do say so myself. So basically you just get it fresh delivered to you every ingredient that you'll need down to the spices is in this bag. And all you have to do is go to greenchef.com slash humans 130 and use the promo code humans 130 130 to get $130 off plus free shipping. Did you hear that? Greenchef.com slash humans 130 and use the code humans 130 to get off plus free shipping. There's no one size fits all solution when it comes to hair care. A product that works wonders for curls might make straight hair limp and heavy and greasy. Pros makes custom hair care that is effective using natural ingredients with proven results. Pros custom every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Pros starts by asking about you as a person with their in-depth consultation. So first, Pro starts asking you about unexpected things like how often do you wash your hair? Next, Pro's analyzes all the answers and determines what unique blend of ingredients should be in every product of the custom online routine. Together, Pro's got all my hair goals covered. I am using the Pro's shampoo and conditioner and... My hair is bouncy and soft and shiny and fuller. I tend to get really flat hair. So anything that can make it look a little bit fuller as the years go by is good for me. And as a carbon neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All their hair ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon neutral, which I love. I love finding products that are doing right in the world. So if you are not 100% positive, Pros is the best hair care you've had. They will take the products back with no questions asked. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name on it. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash humans. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash humans for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. 
Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. Remember to subscribe. We drop new episodes every Tuesday. So see you then. So when someone's thinking about what's going on with their child, how does this translate if they're like, okay, I can see the red, I can see the blue and I can see the green, but in short bursts, not for lengthy periods of time. Would the response translate differently if that question even makes sense? No, it's a great question. And the answer is we want to see short cycling through these cycles throughout the day. So depending on your child's social and emotional development, not just their chronological age, but their developmental age, right? Because children all have varying uh, social emotional processes in flux from birth to early, early twenties, but we want to see these flashes of upset. Uh, we, we expect, I shouldn't say we want to, you know, as it's, it's hard when you're going through it as a parent, but brief flashes are very adaptive. That's the child's body getting ready to try to solve a problem or feel better. But I think it's really useful for parents to understand that's the difference between a top-down mediated behavior and a body-up behavior. Because we tend to think about behaviors as all behaviors as volitional, intentional misbehavior. But when the sympathetic nervous system is in charge, the body leads the way. Mm -hmm. And as parents, how many of us can relate to losing it with our child? And if you haven't ever lost it with your child, I'm really concerned for you because, you know, it's part of being human is to lose it. If you, maybe if you haven't lost it with your child, you've lost it with a partner or yelled at somebody, you know, and then you feel really embarrassed and bad, but that was when your body's threat detection system detected a high enough level of threat that you needed to respond with movement, which is sometimes yelling bad words or, doing stuff that you don't feel proud of. <laughs> the key is for adults that it's for us to track our own, our own nervous systems. And our children can't do that yet, especially toddlers. They can't do that yet. And our neurodivergent children um, really need a lot of space and a lot of support. So to answer your question, we want to, if your child seems down in the dumps or blue or checked out and they're there for, for a while, this is how we manage. There's so many individual differences in, in, in how people respond to stress. But if a child stays there for days at a time, then we want to really come alongside and look at the child's stress response system. How is their little body or their big body managing the demands of stress in their life? And I mean that kind of on a physiological level, not on a mental level. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to ask more on this because I can imagine parents, this happens so often, hearing about stress and then 
turning stress in and of itself into this dangerous thing. And so I just want to highlight that there is a difference between moving through the red, the blue, and the green on a day-to-day basis, coming up and down, experiencing what is being thrown at you, and having a chronic experience in one of those colors that we don't want kids to be in on you know, an ongoing basis. So I wonder if we can distinguish between the benefits of not... I don't want to say benefits. Well, but I mean, there are some benefits in terms of uh, growing resilience and you talk about that. So I guess I want to distinguish between the positive stressors that will grow resilience and the more chronic experiences, which are dependent on the, how the child is experiencing them, of course, because to your point, what one child is experiencing as something that will keep them in a state of blue is going to be different than what another child will experience. And for us as the adults to judge that is a problem for the kids to experience in that way is not the actual problem. We just want to help them out of it. But I guess I want to highlight that when people hear this, not to translate a moment of red into a toxic stressor. And I, I think it's so worth diving into Otherwise, it's another example of kind of when science is misinterpreted because we're stressed out in in hearing it and then we just forget what to do. Absolutely. And we tend to, what, what I think it's just so important for parents not to blame or shame ourselves when we hear something and go, oh no, I've, I've messed up. I've done something wrong. So please, no blame, no shame. This is all in the service of, just helping us be more curious because kids yes. are going to be fine. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to say that with any disrespect, but our kids, human beings are resilient and there's always room for growth and improvement because our brains are always open to predicting new things. It's so hopeful. But I love what you just asked about resilience because I think we should touch on that. And many of us are hesitant to have our children or to witness our children going through challenges. It's hard. It's probably the hardest thing as a, as a mom, I think that I faced was witnessing my child go through challenges. But I talk about something called the challenge zone and in occupational therapy, one of the therapists that I, Jean Ayers, that I, that I quote a lot had this idea of the just right challenge. And in a just right challenge, we don't grow to learn new strengths or feel in our bodies this power unless we have a certain amount of stress. Dr. Bruce Perry, I quoted him in one of my books, and he said, your brain doesn't learn new things without a certain amount of stress. Now, that doesn't mean that life has to be hard for your child. But what is stress? Basically, stress is something new. Exactly. And your body learning to be flexible with something new. So I think this idea of a challenge zone is really useful because again, what might feel challenging for one child or one of your children, if you have more than one, could be very easy for the next one. So we need to judge the challenge zone by how our child's body and brain, how their platform is doing during those challenges. And then titrate 
so that we give them just enough, but that they're not constantly overwhelmed. Then you don't learn anything there at all. all. Right. Right. And you might start to feel kind of crummy about yourself. So it's that challenge zone. We need those types of stressors. And how can we help as parents? Well, one way is to just witness and be there with our child, see it rather than trying to say, oh, it's not so bad, you you know, suck it up. Not that, not that any of your listeners would say that, but, but I know that it versus fix it versus fix it or have a quick fix for it to say, I know this is hard. Oh, my sweetheart. This is, wow. This is rough. You are not alone. And let's see how gentle you can be on yourself right now as we go through this together. And that's where that flex, really resilience, I think, at its core is about flexibility. Mm-hmm. Because how many of us, even our kids on a day-to-day basis are thrown curveballs, especially that's the last couple of years. Right now. Yeah. Like right now. Like who has stability in their life right now? Basically in our whole planet, right? Yeah. This fear of, of and, and this real threat of, of danger all around us. And it's testing and stressing our resilience levels at really unprecedented levels. And I feel my heart goes out to parents and kids and everybody right now. We need to hang in there and be gentle and know that this is hard. This is hard. Yeah, this is hard. And also I really cling to the resilience model for this particular experience, which will be certainly, I, you know, we wouldn't wish this on any anybody, but it is in fact what it is. And there is a world where we can hopefully think about the resilience building component that's possible with our loving support is my hope. Your hope is going to happen because I believe this is going to be built into the fabric of our children's lives and in the future, because you and I basically didn't have to go through something like this in our lifetimes. In fact, our parents really didn't either. And even that great flu of the 1918 pandemic flu, it didn't last this long, I don't think. So our children are going to have a reservoir of resilience. I believe that is the case. And I have met so many parents and I know you are right there because I've listened to your work and understand your message is that parents like you are going to make sure that their children build resilience out of this because you are there, you're present and your relationship carries the day. And that's the hopeful message is that relationships, we are social beings. We're meant to struggle together, not on our own. Right. There is no resilience without relationships. Yes. Which, if you frame it in a more positive way, relationships build resilience. And so, when we're thinking about this, and then I do want to go back to the conversation, not that this isn't a big part of the conversation, but we just know how beautifully our nervous systems can respond to stress when there is a safe relationship available, which goes back to your original story. And as simple as that sounds, it is so deeply true. And it would be so heartening and hopeful if every parent listening believes it enough to actually feel a little bit of the weight off 
of the worries of the future if you can focus on building those close connections because they buffer the effects of some of this awful stress. That's the hope and that's the science. I love the way you framed it. And yes, yeah, I know it may sound too simple to be true, but the complexity of the science will boggle your mind. The relationship between relationships, at least one, and you don't need a dozen, but if you just have one, for goodness sakes, look at Harvard Center on the Developing Child. The, the research behind resilience goes towards relationships. So maybe parents who are listening can feel that this would take some pressure off. That's right. You know, the, the thing about resilience is that you don't need to sign up your child for a resilience course. Yeah. Or you don't necessarily need to help have your child get executive function classes at age six or have an extra book for them to read about tragedies. Cozy up with your child, snuggle with them, laugh with them, tickle, do whatever brings joy, play a game. Believe it or not, the brain changes that wire to safety when you are both experiencing pleasure or joy are the best thing to wire your brain for resilience. So now going back to this toddler, I'm just making up toddler because we're talking about toddler. So now we're back in a toddler world Yeah, and we've talked about sort of helping toddlers through these states when it's just the day-to-day and it's not turning into something that's lasting for weeks. But if it is something that's lasting longer, at what point do you say, okay, we need more support? And at what point is the support about helping parents figure out how to give that support? Yeah. Well, the first thing we want to do, since we're talking about younger kids, especially if you have birth to five-year-old, let's say, is to make sure you're not working under the expectation gap. The expectation gap is where, through no fault of your own, you're expecting more self-regulation from your child than your child is developmentally able to have. So you may not need professional support. You may just need somebody saying, hey, your expectations are a little offline with your three-year-olds developing self-regulation because every single kid has their own pathway to self-regulation. You will not find an age time where something clicks and all of a sudden you have a regulated child. It is an embodied relational experience that is different for each child. So since I do get a ton of infants and toddlers in my practice, a lot of what I do in the beginning when I'm trying to support a parent and say, how can I help you? It is figuring out if the expectations are in line with where the child is. So check your expectations and understand that for many of our, of our toddlers, we have to be, and I know it's really hard to be more patient and slow things down, slow down the transitions. And if they're having a freak out attack because they can't, you know, wear their rainbow jammies instead of their polka dot jammies. Mm-hmm. Understand <laughs> that when their platform is weak, that is in their body budget, their physiology, when it's shifting towards being more vulnerable, 
it can feel like a catastrophe in their body that they can't wear their rainbow jammies. And when we get that, then we can have some compassion and we can have some beautiful strength. Like, oh, darn, those rainbow jammies are getting washed. Goodness gracious, but here there are these, these polka dot ones. And then maybe we'll go read a book or whatever you do. We can maintain our strength. And I know it's really hard when you're tired and exhausted. I know that. That is where my heart breaks because we are all tired and exhausted. And I don't know what it would be like to have a toddler right now. But oh the my gosh. Patience yeah. that toddlers take. But please, if you can compassionately hear this, when they have a, a big, huge reaction to a small thing, if you see their hands sweaty, their face red, their heart rate racing, please know it's, they're not intentionally trying to, to screw up your night or your day. They are having a physiological reaction to not being able to regulate their body and brain. And they need an adult to help lend them our calmness, to lend them our green pathway. So speaking of lending a green pathway, will you explain co-regulation? I think the easiest way I can, I think of co-regulation is when we lend our calmness to another human who needs help. So in the color pathways, it's when we lend our green to our child who is in the red or in the blue, or in a mixed pathway, because there's blended states. They're doing research on blended states. So you might have a child who looks checked out on the outside, but inside their their heart rate is racing. That would be what we call a blended state. But anyway, that's the science of it. But lending our calmness, lending, lending a hand, breathing out this. And I, and I don't like to talk about the the research on emotional contagion, but there's a lot of research on emotional contagion, meaning so, that- Right, it's so hard it, it makes you feel guilty. And yes, that's why, yes. That's why I don't like to talk about it very much, but they're just to say they have done studies that emotions are kind of contagious, but we don't have to freak out about that. We can remember that the repair is what matters, not okay. the rupture, and we can always repair. But also I think- it legitimizes, and I know parents are going to cringe when I say this, but I think it legitimizes the need for some self-care, which means we need enough sleep. Mommies and daddies, you're not getting enough sleep. I, I know I sound like a grandmother when I say that, but we need to be well enough. And even if it's micro moments of self-care, you are the vessel, you, the parent, whoever's there with the child, the mommy, the daddy, the grandparent, the nanny, whoever is there, your state matters. It's not optional. And when I was raising my children when they were younger, before I studied early development, I really thought it was optional. I was a taskmaster. I was nice. I was kind. I was firm. I did all the things they said you're supposed to do. But oftentimes I was such a stressed out mess that I, you know, I would even forget to drink water. I was so busy with working and raising kids. So our physical bodies and our mental bodies and our calmness and our mindfulness matter. No, I just saw an article that was kind of um, a mom who's sort of at her wits end with hearing about self-care. But I think that that's happening because people are equating self-care with 
you know, an unrealistic spa day. Yes. Yeah. So you're yeah. not talking about that. You're just no. simply talking about believing and buying into the idea that taking care of your actual vessel of well-being, like this, nobody can see me. So that was a silly gesture that I just made. No, but no this is it. <laughs> this we are pointing to our whole selves. Our um, whole selves. And by the way, if you pay attention to that vessel, my book that's coming out will provide the research. You will be less likely in your 60s and 70s to have inflammation-related diseases like heart disease, high uh, blood lipids, even maybe some forms of cancer because that chronic inflammation of the stress response is damaging. We know that there's hard research on chronic inflammation. And let me also say that if you, if you need evidence of why sleep is important, listen to the YouTube video. It's, I think it's called sleep is your life support system. It's on the leading sleep researcher. I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but the leading sleep researcher. And he says, sleep is your life support system. So I know you feel like you can get away with four or five hours of sleep sometimes. And we, some, we can, yeah. Yeah. right? Guilty, totally. And, and guess what? If it happens over years, you're human. You're a, you're a mammal. It's going to catch up with you. So again, I want to say this like with such gentleness and such compassion, but since I'm a little older and my adults, my children are adults now, I can say it with conviction uh, because I've seen so many parents suffer physical illness when their children are teenagers or young adults, because what they laid out, I think we do it biologically. We put our children first. And I love that about humans. I did that myself. I mean, I'm a very fierce, fierce mother (laughs) and my cells, I felt my children. And I get that. That's why we can lift up cars. Right. But if you also understand that a little bit of micro moments of self-care and just getting enough sleep and food really makes you able to stay in the green more. Right. So if, you know, if you are not wanting to do that and you think of it as staying in the green so that you have the green to lend because co-regulation is such an enormous part of infant and toddler development. It's how they will move to self-regulation and it will never be otherwise. Never be. There's no we're, we're, we're humans. There's no alternative to co-regulation. All the studies that they did about those, you know, starting in the forties and fifties, that children who didn't get co-regulation had failure to thrive. You know, those, those Romanian were, yeah, Romanian orphans. And, and, and so co-regulation is not an option. And we also, I think, don't really understand co-regulation very well. I think we we think it it means that we have to be perfect or we have to be giving the kid what they want or happy all the time. It's really not that. It's no, just no, grounded. no. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because it doesn't mean that you just have to be a super chill, always, you know, always in the green. It just means no. that especially in those moments when your child isn't which is so, I just got a good deep breath out of that. Just even thinking about it. I I like simplifying it in these ways of imagining like lending your color in that moment and finding that green for yourself in order to lend it. You can go red at another time. 
Like there's definitely plenty of time during the day. As you said, there's not, none of us, if you have not gotten frustrated yet, it's because your kid is younger and maybe <laughs> just give it, give it a minute. Um, I know. I talked to this adorable mom yesterday of a two-year-old and she told me that she cried in front of her two-year-old for the first time and because she was so tired. And I just like my heart. I was like, oh, this is just starting. You know, you cried. Bless you. You mean you haven't cried in front of her before that? <laughs> but I didn't say it. I was like, she's just a sensitive, amazing person. And we try so hard. So I think, yes, it, we don't have to be perfect, but he, little humans do need this shared regulation. We are created to have sh- shared regulation. And well, I like that. I like shared regulation better than co-regulation. I yeah. Like it's sharing because it's definitely, it's bi-directional. We get stuff from them and they get stuff from us, us, whether it's positive or negative. It's care sharing. It's not co-regulating. It's, it's a relationship. They are a, not us. They are actually separate humans, <laughs> even babies. And I guess this is the other piece that I, that I wish I would have known more when two of my children were toddlers before I learned the stuff is that I really felt pressure for disciplinary moments when my toddlers were what I thought were, were being unreasonable or misbehaving. I felt like it was such pressure because I want to raise a good human. That's, that's, you're raising good humans. I mean, I, I really wanted to raise good humans and polite people. And that was kind of a family value that we have, that we want to be, that we, you know, we want to be good to other people. And so I felt so much pressure to discipline my children into being, you know, good, I guess, before I understood the difference between, you know, stress responses and purposeful misbehaviors that needed correction. And it's a big difference. The best guidance isn't a a parenting script, in my opinion. It's using what works in your child's nervous system. So let's use an example of a good parenting script. You're really angry right now. I see that your body is angry and you're clenching your fists. And now you have the script of naming what's happening and uh, validating the feeling and observing what's you know yes. going on in the body. But you have one kid who responded really well to that and felt seen and heard and felt. And another kid who gets even more distressed and angry and is just like, you in that moment realize, wait, no script is going to work. This kid needs my physical body to do something different and for me Love to it. zip it. Love it. Love it. One kid would be like, mommy, I am mad. Yes, I am mad. And the other kid would be, I'm not mad. You know, don't tell me I'm mad, you poopoo face. I mean, they could just like explode and and they'll go into the red with the same script. So this is another good, I love that example because it's why there's this, kind of value that we place on naming emotions. And let me just say that sometimes the worst thing in the world you can do with a particular child is name their emotion because it has to fit for the child and the situation and their development and their physiological state, their platform. So there's so much that goes into it, but it's not as complicated as it sounds because you can kind of develop a manual for each of your children. 
on what works and what doesn't work. And that's what I aim to do in my books is help parents develop customized parenting instructions based on their child, not just based on a generic child. And, you know, if a script is working for you, go for it because go for sometimes it. it's fantastic, but I love yes. And, and if it's but don't feel bad, if it doesn't, if he's used it successfully and then it falls flat, don't feel like you're doing something wrong. It's just not landing well in that child, in that child. And so it's a little bit of detective work and you'll say the wrong thing that seems like the right thing, but then you'll have your customized manual in the end, which I, I love that idea. You have um, your tools and techniques and they're based on your child's sensory systems and their history. And you, you there's a way of categorizing it that I, that it's, it, it all makes sense once you understand your child and, you know, going back to my, my oldest child, once I understood her automatic nervous system or her autonomic nervous system and where things were landing for her, oh my goodness, our relationship, our communication and our, our joyful moments together just increased like amazingly. And it's just, it's there, there's, again, there's, there's always, I believe there's always hope. So if you have a child that you you're struggling with, or you feel like they're not self-regulating the way you would hope they would, please know there's so much we can do to rewire for connection and to help that child's brain begin to predict differently for the future. There's always hope for the future.